Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Helen Snee, who is a research associate at the University of Manchester, and we'll be discussing her new book, A Cosmopolitan Journey, Difference, Distinction and Identity Work in Gap Year Travel, which is published by Ashgate this summer. Okay, hello. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Helen Snee, who is a research associate at the University of Manchester, about her new book, A Cosmopolitan Journey, Difference, Distinction and Identity Work in Gap Year Travel. The book has just been published by Ashgate uh, this summer, um, and it's a really interesting text that brings up all kinds of questions about culture, class and the modern world in which we live. But to start with, it'd be really interesting uh, to get a sense of uh, why the book was written and where it kind of came from and Helen's intellectual journey behind the book. So if you could tell the listeners a little bit about that. Um, Okay, so uh, I've always seen myself uh, very much as a product of uh, sociology at the University of Manchester. Um, um, I initially took an undergraduate degree in economic and social sciences, so it's a bit more of a mixed social sciences degree when I started out um, as a uh, during uh, kind of my undergraduate training, and um, it was really taking classes with people like Bev Skeggs and uh, reading the work of people like Mike Savage and Ellen Ward and Fiona Devine at Manchester. They really kind of captured my imagination, particularly um, work that Drew Bourdieu and uh, kind of really sparked a lot of um, intellectual questions for me. Um, I didn't go straight on to do uh, a master's degree when I finished my undergraduate degree. Um, I took some time off, which mainly involved doing some rubbish uh, kind of office jobs. But one of the things I did do was that I spent um, about nine months travelling around Southeast Asia and so Australia. You, you did have a gap year then? Yeah, well, this is it. This is where it all came from, really. And it wasn't... Um, well, the first thing is I never called it a gap year when I was doing it. That was something that I noticed on my return, that that was kind of the way that people t- tended to frame it. I kind of very much saw it as um, travelling um, and taking some time out and, uh, to travel. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely where the um, kind of the seeds were sown, really, for the book. So when I came back um, and I did a bit more uh, <laughs> kind of rubbish uh office jobs and then um, applied to do uh, my PhD at Manchester, which was based on, uh, which is where this book came from. It's based on our PhD research. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because um, even in the kind of the language you're using there, you know, this idea of kind of travel, um, the question of whether it was called a gap year when you were sort of traveling and stuff like this mm-hmm. is really, really important to the book. Um, and yes. Other, you know, sort of terms we might, we might focus on. Um, over the course of our discussion. But to start with, um, it'd be really useful, actually, if you could kind of explain what a gap year is and who are gappers, as you call them, in the book. Mm -hmm. Maybe why do they matter? Okay. Um, I mean, a gap year is something that uh, 
the, the, the definition that a lot of people use is kind of quite wide, which is any period, kind of the longest period of time um, that somebody will kind of take out of their normal tra- trajectory, whether that be in, um, education or employment. Um, but because um, it can kind of be seen as something that people can do at any stage of their life. So you get this idea of silver gappers, which are people who are kind of a little bit older, they're taking some time out, maybe they've retired and they want to go and travel. Yet career gappers where people um, have maybe established themselves in their career and they want to take a bit of time out again to travel. But I suppose the one kind of group of people it's most definitely associated is with young people taking uh, some time off either between school and university or after they finish university like I did. Um, And it's very much a sense of this is a kind of legitimate thing to do, that it's not just kind of bumming around, even though it might actually evolve just bumming around. Um, And it's what's really interesting that I found out recently is that, um, that young people who are uh, on gap years are counted and they're not in education, um, employment or training figures because obviously they're not kind of, they're not looking for work, they're not on any kind of official training schemes. But you would never consider some uh, young person who's on a gap year as neat because they don't fall into that problem category. So a lot of the book looks at um, the framing of particular types of experiences as legitimate. And I think that um, that's what interests me so much about gap years as for the gappers themselves um particularly if we're talking about young people who are gappers it's a very stereotypical kind of perception of a gapper as somebody who's quite posh somebody who um uh is kind of takes that his credit card and goes traveling around um southeast asia and kind of gets into scrapes and isn't really that concerned about having a kind of proper experience but even kind of poking fun at that kind of figure was something that was very interesting to me that it kind of uh, encapsulates and um, highlights some of the struggles that surround what is and isn't legitimate. I mean it's it's really interesting you talk about um, the kind of struggles for legitimacy because um, the story you're telling about this social group is so like heavily classed isn't it? Yes. Um, And you know it ties into to really kind of particular elements of, of, of I guess kind of both British but kind of wider um, class structures and I, I think maybe one sort of interesting way in which you tell this story in the book is the story of Max that you use in the mm-hmm. introduction I don't know if you could tell the readers uh, the listeners uh, sort of Max's story and how both you know he, he seemed to be kind of critiqued for from high and low social positions yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a bit of a gift, really. Um, it's a great story to use, um, not just in the book, but I, I, using it in presenting this work. And basically, it's a, a young guy called Max Gogarty. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And the Guardian commissioned him to blog about his um, his gap year. So he was going to uh, India and Thailand. He was 19. And... Um, in some ways, it's kind of kind of innocuous, kind of harmless, fun thing for him to do. So what happened to Max was that he um, wrote his first post, and it's very kind of tongue-in-cheek and playful, but um, 
in his description, uh, his kind of biography, it does say that he writes for Skins in his spare time, which is quite a popular um, kind of young people television series. He's from North London. It turns out that his dad was a freelance journalist who'd also written for The Guardian. Um, so there was a sense um, that this was somebody who was coming from a particular position of privilege, somebody who's kind of very much part of a uh, kind of uh, particular cultural uh, class. Um, so he writes this kind of very kind of funny blog post and the response to it from the readers was just astounding. He just kind of gets everything ripped out of him. Um, people attack him. They talk, they, uh, I mean, the comments are great. Um, they're calling him posh. They just go away to get drunk. He's got money. Um, but they also kind of pick up on a lot of, um, the criticisms that have been leveled at Gapiers from an academic point of view as well. So, um, He's going for life experiences on daddy's money. He's going for, to India to try and find himself. And that's kind of such a cliched, um, cliched thing to do that uh, it's kind of the commercialization of poverty or some way that's ennobling. Um, and so, yeah, it was a kind of a really interesting story. And his blog never went anywhere. Unfortunately, they pulled it. Um, it, it made a few papers and... But he, I, I'm assuming he still went on his gap here. But yeah, the blog, the blog never happened. Um, so yeah, I think what Max's story shows is um, it really highlighted for me some of the three kind of the three main themes that run throughout the book, which is the relationship between um, gappers and the people and the places that they come across, um, what young people get actually get out of gap year travel, and how class plays a role. In, uh, in that um, and the kind of uh, this idea of gap years of self-development as well that a lot of the um, a lot of the comments on the blog actually started to kind of pull that apart a little bit as well I mean it's really interesting that you're really kind of um, keen to stress that you know the gappers uh, you know, the individuals um, that you're sort of working with were not you know the subject of, of criticisms as it were what you're trying to do is look both at the kind of i suppose the broader industry mm-hmm. that surrounds this practice um but also the kind of social structures in which they're embedded and i guess um a much broader kind of theoretical literature um that mm-hmm. is bound up with i guess making judgments about what is good and, and, and bad kind of behavior taste mm-hmm. or cultural consumption practices and one of the ways um, that I found really kind of fascinating in the book um, that you did this was by linking um, the practices of kind of going away um, or looking for authenticity or having one of these um, kind of gap adventures is through this idea of cosmopolitanism, uh, which I think mm-hmm. is really crucial um, and important in the book. So I wonder if you could sort of say what cosmopolitanism is, maybe um, give us a, a, an idea of the debates around it and then kind of what role it plays in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the interesting things about cosmopolitanism, I mean, there's uh, is how it can prevail that it's becoming in a lot of kind of social um, social research and social theory at the moment. Um, at the same time, it's something that's so kind of um, multifaceted and multidimensional and kind of even a contested term. So it. I think even the debates surrounding cosmopolitanism kind of um, are quite useful to play with and think about. I mean, at the very simple level, I've been looking at the idea of cosmopolitanism as being a world citizen, which is kind of very literally what 
what the term means so thinking about being um awareness of yourself in a kind of global context being open to difference um, and being tolerant of difference as well but um the this also really overlaps with um the kind of the moral and the ethical and political aspects of this as well so um not just looking at cosmopolitanism orientation to the world being open to difference but how that might um inform ideas about um uh yeah kind of political standpoints or um uh kind of whether there's a kind of some kind of commonality global uh, kind of uh, common culture i suppose um so yeah really kind of this idea of, of becoming a citizen of the world really um uh, in, particularly in the concept in the kind of very well established idea that um you know globalization is playing a bigger and bigger part in everybody's um in everybody's lives and particularly for young people who might be looking um to what they should be doing with their lives and the idea of the global kind of features quite strongly in that um both in terms of what informs their own ideas but also um where they should be looking and even things like you know where they should be looking for employment i mean it, it, it's tricky in a way because um in that framing cosmopolitanism sounds great <laughs> you know it's, mm. it's like it, it sounds you know like um exactly the kind of i guess set of attitudes and, and maybe orientation um towards the world that um you know that would be difficult to kind of um, critique but one of the things you point out in, in the in the book is the way that actually this kind of cosmopolitan uh, i suppose attitude doesn't play out exactly like that for the gappers mm-hmm. uh, and you know it, it's really bound up with kind of some quite problematic judgments as well mm-hmm. i mean i suppose the thing is and it's something that that's kind of quite well uh, well established um is this idea that well first of all that maybe the cosmopolitans are elite so it's just kind of uh this idea of the elite traveler uh, a global elite traveler who has a privilege um and the resources to be able to move freely from one place to place when other people are quite fixed um another kind of way to come at that critique is just because you kind of consume difference you consume these uh intercultural experiences it just experiences it doesn't necessarily mean that you learn anything or you become more open um so and actually by kind of consuming that exoticness or authenticity you're actually reproducing um divisions um so yeah there's that idea of kind of elitism and um uh kind of distinction um and um uh commercialization i suppose uh that that kind of critique of cosmopolitanism comes from so it's less about kind of the idea that cosmopolitanism is good or bad it's more about um what what is you know what 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 we're talking about what kind of cosmopolitan experiences are people having and um you sort of set this up by playing off um uh, i think two really important major theorists um i guess sort of bourdieu pierre bourdieu who's a french social theorist um, and Anthony Giddens, who's a sort of English uh, social theorist. Um, mm-hmm. This manifests itself in the idea of two different forms of, of gapping, the kind of habitual um, and the reflexive gapper. So I wonder if you mm-hmm. could um, sort of explain that um, that debate and, and possibly, yeah. possibly whose side you come down on. <laughs> well, but the, um, the interesting, uh, well, I suppose Giddens, first of all, is... Uh, 
comes very much from this idea that uh, to perhaps to be cosmopolitan, you need to be reflexive. So you need to kind of reflect back on yourself and think about, in terms of cosmopolitanism, especially, especially, you know, your place in the world. So it's not just kind of being a global person and, and not um, and kind of going about kind of the day-to-day. It's actually kind of critically reflecting back on what that means. Um, and also in terms of uh, the way gap years are held up as a, this self-development activity. So it's... Um, Giddens talks a lot about how um, young people at fateful moments, like, for example, you know, finishing school, they need to think about where they're going to go in their lives. They need to um, kind of tell the story of their lives in particular ways. And a lot of people refer to Giddens um, as trying to think about how young people use travel as a way of telling kind of who they are as people and that kind of process of reflexive self-development. So that's where the interest in um, Giddens comes on, especially when we're thinking about um, kind of, uh, this is obviously all in the context of kind of increased global mobility and globalisation. In terms of Bourdieu, I mean, the project um, initially started very much focusing on Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital, so this idea that a gap year would be something for young people that was very advantageous, that they could um, use that um, when they were at university, they could use that when they were applying for jobs. Um, and incidentally, I mean, that's kind of one of the way one of the, uh, the ideas from this book came from, is that when I came back from travelling, um, I had I was applying just for temping jobs, you know, um, and I was kind of go through all these recruitment consultants and... Um, I had this gap in my CV, this nine-month gap in my CV, which is the period I've been travelling. So I wrote a little blurb about how it made me really independent and kind of uh, all the things that doing that gave me. And the recruitment consultant told me that was brilliant. So that was really the um, the idea that this kind of travel, this self-development might actually be advantageous and using Bourdieu's concept of um, cultural capital to understand that and hand-in-hand hand with... Um, Bourdieu's uh, concept of capital is this idea of habitus that um, we are not reflexive about our actions. We have our um, kind of place in the world is kind of um, shapes us at this kind of um, pre-reflexive level. So it was when I was thinking about how to approach this theoretically, it was very much setting up um, Bourdieu and Giddens in this um, opposition, which a lot of people do, and it's not necessarily... Um, kind of the most theoretically sophisticated um, way of doing it, but it was seeing on one hand you have a reflexive um, young person who is choosing the path through the world and deciding to go on a gap year because that is how they want to tell the story of their life and to develop themselves. Um, and that also Giddens talks a lot about how the um, the older kind of structures of uh, class don't shape people's lives in the same way. Whereas um, for, from a Bourdieu's perspective, you get much more of this idea of um, the reproduction of social structures and that young people might be more guided by the habitus. They, um, this idea that a gap year is a kind of common sense, good thing to do, that will kind of help them to accumulate cultural capital, be advantageous for them in the future. And it's also the, those who um, in a position of privilege who kind of have a, a sense of knowing what's legitimate and then they do the legitimate thing and they kind of get the legitimate outcome. So it's kind of setting up Giddens and um, Bourdieu at kind of opposite ends of the scale.
in terms of reflexivity on one hand and um, more habitual action on the other. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way you, you talk both about gap years as a, as a means of accumulating this kind of cosmopolitan form of cultural capital. Mm-hmm. that allows people to construct this cosmopolitan identity. But then in Chapter 6, you have this kind of killer line that really stood out for me, that uh, not everybody had the kind of the good taste to take a gap year, uh, mm-hmm. suggesting a really kind of important relationship between, um, I suppose, the idea that taking a gap year is a good thing, it's something mm-hmm. one should do, and it's a way of displaying the kind of, uh, you know, kind of good taste one might have and I wonder if you could say a bit about the relationship between that kind of idea of cosmopolitanism um, and consumption practices around having good taste um, Mm -hmm. and maybe making social boundaries. Yeah I mean I think it's part of a a wider trend Um, I think it's something that um, I think something that John Arus talked about as well this idea of um, kind of realness and, and authenticity in good middle class taste so um and the reason why boundaries come into it is quite often it's quite often a lot easier to talk about what's bad taste which tends to be stuff that's put against anti uh, put in opposition to cosmopolitanism so we know that bad taste is going to malia or um um ibiza and getting incredibly drunk and uh, young people kind of um having this very um this kind of very uh, loud, ostentatious kind of uh, experience that's all about getting drunk and hanging out with their friends and nothing to do with kind of engaging with, with local culture, whereas proper, nice, middle-class travel is about, you know, real experience, going off the beaten track. Um, and it's very much... Uh, this isn't necessarily kind of a, a new phenomenon. It's um, held up as... Uh, tourists are quite often being seen as vulgar and, and unsophisticated and it's really kind of drawing on that historical division between the, the tourist and the traveller. So tourists have, have go for inauthentic experiences and they're kind of maybe uh, concerned with pleasure and it's things that are very easy. Whereas being a traveller is about, you know, getting inside um, uh, a, a local culture, getting to understand kind of the local context, um, but also being able to move between different contexts as well and that very much chimes with um with these trends towards cosmopolitanism as good taste so you can get other examples of um uh being able to go to lots of different um uh lots of different types of restaurants so being able to eat lots of different types of food is is good cosmopolitan taste so yeah it's, it's really um kind of picking up on um on these trends which are always kind of presented or tend to be presented as kind of very common sense well you know of course that's that's the best way that's the best way to be um and what it does is it draws these boundaries between what is not seen as good taste and that's always pretty much um a very kind of classed boundary as well yeah i mean i mean it has so many obvious parallels with cultural consumption and the debates over omnivorousness in both the united states Mm-hmm. Um, and in Europe, where you know you, you see uh, the idea of being able to not just kind of consume elite forms uh, of culture such as classical music uh, mm-hmm. or complex conceptual art, but the ability to go between different cultural forms and different cultural worlds mm-hmm. is seen as a kind of you know a, a morally good uh, thing, and it just so happens that it tends to be um, 
sections of the middle class or the kind of the aspirational uh, middle class and, and upper class that uh, have these attitudes, have this kind of omnivorous behavior and omnivorous tastes. And mm-hmm. yet um, it's maybe members of the working class or particular forms of socially mobile groups that don't have those tastes and thus can be kind of made lesser or, or sort of have uh, social distinction imposed upon mm-hmm. them. And it's it's fascinating to see your analysis, I guess, kind of um, reveal this depth, um, moving away from just saying, oh, only posh people take gap years or something like that, but to see mm-hmm. the kind of the function um, of, of this form of, as you say, travel rather than um, rather than tourism. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess kind of um, one thing that comes up in, in, in the book um, that allows you to make these kind of uh, theoretically informed detailed conclusions and comments is the aspect of the empirical research um, that connects up to the critical theory that you were working on. Um, and in that respect, the book was quite innovative um, and involved, I guess, a kind of a, a new form of research that's emerging and becoming very popular in social science, um, which is doing online work. So what, what was the online aspect um, of, the, uh, of the empirical work in the book? Mm-hmm. I mean, that really uh, ended up being the, the main um, kind of source of data, which was um, looking at the travel blogs that young people had written about their gap years as a kind of way of um, uh, accessing the narratives, the stories that, pe- that young people told. Um, and one of the, I mean, the main, main advantage of that is that um, it's the stories that they tell, they tell, um, it's not directed by researcher, so it's kind of found narratives. So these are kind of the 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 stories that young people present to, to the world, to whoever's reading their blog about what a gap year involves, how they understand it. And one of the kind of um, ideas I use uh, throughout the book is this idea of framing. So we kind of know a little bit about how gap years are framed in the media, you know, or in kind of... Um, public debates and I was kind of quite interested to see how young people use those frames in in their own kind of storytelling as well um so that's probably the um the the main yeah the, the blogs are really the main data source for the book I did supplement them with um uh some semi-searched interviews as well with some of the bloggers but really it was the online the online stories um which is really kind of a uh a new, almost a new form of documentary, um, uh, document analysis, really. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it yeah. goes even even beyond. Uh, I guess this will be familiar with British sociology listeners, but maybe not to uh, to other global audiences. It goes beyond the British tradition of something like a mass observation diary that is asking people to kind of you know keep diaries and stuff like that. In a sense that mm-hmm. the blogs are written by the individuals, not for research purposes, but um, I was going to say they're written for themselves, but actually one of the things that's really interesting is who they are written for and what the purpose mm-hmm. of the writing is, which is one of the major chapters in the book. So perhaps you could expand a bit on um, on sort of who or what they're telling stories for. Yeah, it, I mean, it's difficult. And I think that... Um... I think you, I probably could have written a whole. <laughs> I could probably could have written a whole book about the process of telling um, the kind of more methodological aspects and the the, the storytelling aspects of this because I think there was there was quite a lot of variation. But in general, blogs are a way of people kind of keeping their own record of their stories. So um, and also um, it's a way of uh, communicating 
to other people as well. So there's lots of different elements. I mean, in the it was something that I was able to explore in the uh, the interviews with the um, with the gappers and that I spoke to, and they saw it as a way of you know keeping people up to date about their progress. But it was very much. Um, uh, there's very much an awareness of who who might be reading and kind of what the audience might be. So, um, I mean, I remember one guy I spoke to had something a bit more private on Facebook for his close friends, and his blog was very much kind of the public presentation um, of of his experiences. Yeah, definitely. So there was a sense of this is almost kind of their official official story about the gap year and what they were getting up to. Um, and consequently, it, it's it's almost about the kind of the stories that, that should be told about gap years. So it might not necessarily be in, I'm not really bothered whether this is an accurate record of what happened. It's more about um, if they're telling stories to their friends, their parents, people who might have sponsored them to do their volunteering placements. You know, this is kind of the, um, yeah, the, the, the official version. This is me kind of using my time wisely and doing something worthwhile. And the irony, of course, is that you try and pin this down in, in, in a chapter that tries to explore the idea of authenticity, in the, mm-hmm. even as these, I suppose, kind of um, presentations of, um, of the self are, are occurring. They're occurring bound up with the idea of having authentic um, experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that they're also bound up, which is the third of the empirical chapters, with um, the idea of being kind of self-developing or, or almost sort of, I guess, not entrepreneurial, but, um, you know, kind of uh, people who are doing identity work, as you yeah. call it. And I wonder if you could give some um, examples of, of that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, perhaps not entrepreneurial, but definitely kind of enterprising. And there's a, a definite kind of resonance with the, um, I guess, uh, one of the things that interested me most about one what interested me most about the gap year was that um, young people, when they're kind of told about what gap years involve, you know, it makes you more self-reliant, makes you independent, um, you become more confident. They're kind of they're told about these kind of qualities, which are quite kind of um, enterprising. There's a particular type of personalities associated with that that's seen that that's also associated with doing well in kind of um, professional careers, basically. So they kind of get these um, ideas about what it, you know, what a gap year will give you, and then you think, well, what? When they kind of reflect on that, they kind of it's almost that idea is reproduced. Like, oh yes, well, I went, you know, I went on a gap year and I became more independent and self reliant, and I became more confident and I grew as a person, and that's kind of associated with with the, the practice of doing a gap year. Yeah, it's it's that as you call it, the kind of habitual. Um... Yeah. approach the gap here rather than I guess as some of the more uh, optimistic writers about cosmopolitanism and, and modernity uh, would say mm-hmm. would be the kind of the reflexive um, approach it's that yeah. thing I guess of you know everybody seems like they're an individual in these blogs but when you look at them all together there seem to be very clear social structures um, kind of behind them yeah I mean it always it always reminds you of that scene from um, Monty Python's Life of Brian when everybody says oh yes we're all individuals yeah. and I think <laughs> I think it's um, and you can see it in, not just in kind of their stories of self-development but in you know everybody all of the bloggers who go to this particular island in Australia tell you the same story about what's happening to this particular lake because they all go on the same tours yeah 
um, and they can all so they all get the same information and they can uh, present that and it's and it's funny because I do some of the similar things to some of these young people are doing and I kind of already that's the kind of information that I had about these places so the idea that they're being exposed to the world in a particular way and they're learning about the world they're learning very particular things about the world and um the thing that I found most um it's kind of almost a problem when it gets very pessimistic is the idea that it's kind of pointless and what I tried to do was take it a little bit further and think about well when do you get these points of critical reflection when do you actually get the idea that it's not just it's kind of very yeah depressing this idea is um, and where you get it from is when they kind of get some resistance to the ideas or some kind of dialogue or pushback. Um, so that's kind of some of the, the kind of um, some of the, the kind of theoretical um, conclusions I try to draw about how to resolve this kind of dichotomy between the habitual and the reflexive. Yeah, because it, it, it's interesting because you sort of um, extend, I suppose, Bourdieu a little bit in the book. You talk about the way that Bourdieu saw reflexivity occurring in kind of moments of crisis or mm -hmm. I suppose our, our, our modern language would be the kind of, you know, the moments of cognitive dissonance or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Whereas actually, you know, you talk about the gappers having great times, you know, sort of yeah. really enjoying their year and moments of crisis not really being quite the right term. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, one of the things I thought of was, was maybe being out of place might provide that. Um, and what was kind of interesting is that when they talk about being out of place, you know, literally like maybe physically out of place and not physically fitting in with the people around them, they were actually talking about those physical differences in kind of quite um, non-cosmopolitan non -cosmopolitan ways. Yeah. So kind of drawing on stereotypes about the people that were surrounding them. But the sort of reemergence um, of, of the discourses of, of, you know, from which they were trying to distance themselves and, and kind of show yeah. that they had the good taste not to, you know, be, I guess, either tourists or kind of colonial um, travellers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I've got kind of two, um, I guess, kind of broader um, questions about the conclusion to the book um, in the way that, from my sense, and, and you can maybe disagree with me, was that you're sort of ambivalent about cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism in a sense mm. that... Um, it kind of comes across in the text as being just another form of middle-class capital, just another way of kind of, um, I guess, the middle-class reinforcing their um, already existing social position. And in the kind of mm -hmm. Bordeauxian sense, they're kind of re replicating their social power. So uh, I wonder, I mean, is, is that the right reading? I mean, and what do we do if, you know, the kind of the ideas that a lot of us on the, I guess, kind of, you know, liberal um, end of, of society and politics um, are actually kind of, you know, bound up with um, with power and control. I mean, I think um, my, it sounds terrible saying you have a problem with cosmopolitanism. I think I have a problem with who gets to be cosmopolitan. Yeah. And that's really where it comes from. So um, there's a lot of really valuable work about alternative cosmopolitans and subaltern cosmopolitans and ordinary cosmopolitanism um that i think is i think is really important and i think it's it's this idea of framing as well so it's not the fact that um this isn't that is or isn't a cosmopolitan experience it's that this is held up as the kind of 
I think probably the, the way to be cosmopolitan. So there's um, a really uh, interesting article by uh, a guy called Kremin, who um, I draw upon, who says, well, you know, a young person going in a gap year um, is seen to be cosmopolitan. A young person who maybe runs away from home and kind of supports themselves and maybe moves to a big city is not seen as that's not the cosmopolitan experience, even though they're kind of, doing the things that are getting out of them are probably kind of inherently quite similar so so it's back to this idea of um back to this idea of framing and I think one of the things I struggled with a little bit was that you could say oh well how do we make young people who take gap years to be more cosmopolitan how do we get them to kind of critically reflect a bit more on their kind of place in the world and I think that's probably quite important but the danger of that is that it's kind of again focusing on um it's focusing on the kind of already privileged group and helping them to become kind of more um, to kind of kind of improve their experiences rather than addressing kind of some of these bigger issues about what does and doesn't have value and what is and isn't legitimate. Which I guess ultimately is the kind of the purpose of uh, of sociology. Um, in well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean. Uh, that's a, a sort of fascinating discussion. Um, I, I really enjoyed uh, the book, and you know, I sort of do uh, recommend it to anyone who's, who's interested, not just in the kind of uh, sociological aspects of class and um, and culture, but also you know a much wider audience that you know might be interested in kind of you know travel and what traveling means and and this sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, just to sort of finish mm-hmm. off, um, it'd be really interesting to know what you're doing um, sort of now in terms of your work. Where the work is going because obviously there's a whole bunch of questions that come up uh, in the book about you know um, youth transitions to adulthood questions of culture mm-hmm. class taste and value um, mm-hmm. and I'm just interested to know um, sort of the, is there another um, version of um, the book in the, in the works or are you doing something completely different uh, yeah, it's slightly different. I mean, I, I will say that uh, it, it's probably ruined um, doing this research. It's kind of ruined travel a little bit for yeah. me. Also, to kind of consume culture now after, after being a cultural sociologist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's that idea of, um, uh, you know, kind of when you go on holiday and can you really... Uh, you know, kind of reading guidebooks and getting to know the inside and thinking, you know, well, none of us can do that. And I'm just kind of reproducing middle class values if I try to do that. So, um, yeah, uh, it does make you think a lot about um, perhaps just make you think a lot about kind of your own place in the world doing this sort of work. Um, I'm at the moment, I'm um, I've been working quite a lot with um, Professor uh, Fiona Devine who uh, is also at the University of Manchester and we've been doing some work on young people's um, uh, kind of hopes and dreams for the future in terms of their transitions to employment Um, and I've also been working, I've also recently joined the um, Great British Class Survey team um, which had a lot of um, interest recently Um, and it's kind of a very big, big project looking at uh, kind of Borgiosian understandings of class and how we might be able to uh, use that to understand the UK. And what I've been particularly focusing on um, is perhaps some more qualitative follow-up work on that and also um, kind of the subjectivities around class. So back to some of these ideas about boundary drawing and kind of legitimate um, uh, legitimate cultural value and, and also more kind of uh, broad ideas about legitimacy and value as well. So that's the kind of um, the kind of the main two things I've been working on recently, and I'm hoping to develop these 
um, a little bit further than to um, really kind of focus on, um, yeah, go back to kind of some uh, interest I have in the, the sociology of youth and um, the, the perceived choices that young people have and the, the kind of structural constraints that they um, that they encounter. That sounds brilliant, and uh, hopefully you'll um, you'll do another new book on it, and we can get you back. Um, on the podcast soon so thanks very much uh, Helen and uh, I recommend that um, everybody takes a look um, at the new book thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory I've been your host Dr Dave O'Brien from City University of London we were talking with Helen Snee from the University of Manchester about her book A Cosmopolitan Journey Difference, Distinction and Identity Work in Gap Year Travel it's uh, out with Ashgate um, at the moment and as you will have heard from the podcast, I really recommend um, that a broad audience engages with it. It's a really interesting text. Hopefully we'll uh, see you next time for another New Books in Critical Theory podcast.